0: Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Psalms. It's just one verse there. This is what we read in Psalm 25 and verse 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. So you know, don't you, that Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So may his word feed our souls this day. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to each and every one of us here today. We pray that um, as we gather around your word that... um, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth that um, is contained in your word. Pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us. Father, I know that that happens over and over again in our lives. It can happen to us when we're reading your word in private home alone or hearing something on the radio or talking with a friend much you've ordained a time like this in your church when you speak to your people through your pastors I consider it an awesome privilege and responsibility to stand before your people and Lord we know that unless you take what we have into your own hands that it's just not enough and so we we look to you and ask that you would indeed take what I have here today and that you would multiply it and that you would feed the souls of your people, that our understanding, both of our head and our heart, would grow and that we would be changed that we will become more and more the people that you want us to be. And Lord, when you do that for us, we'll give you the credit. We'll acknowledge that it happens because of what you do. And so may you and you alone be exalted in our midst this day. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ your Son, and our Savior. Amen. Uh, Jar Jar Binks of the Gungan tribe was nobody's hero. He was bumbling and inept and banished from his home city for his clumsiness. He was a target of caustic remarks by David Letterman and the brunt of jokes by other late night comedians. He was spoofed in several animated series. Several newspaper columnists roundly condemned him and they seemed to express the sentiment of the majority. He had few supporters and it may be that only the very young children liked him at all. Although many people despised him, some on the radical fringe went even further. They formed an online club called Kill Jar Jar Binks. Star War fans take their movies seriously. Jar Jar was the first major character of that franchise and he was completely computer generated and Binks fares no better in the movie itself than he did with the fans. He was, as mentioned, rejected by his own people, and the Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn refers to him as a worthless life form. Anakin Skywalker, whom the movie revolves around, simply ignored him, and C-3PO calls him strange. We're introduced to him in episode one on his home planet of Naboo when Qui-Gon saves his life. Jar Jar begins following him around and when his benefactor tries to dismiss him and send him away, Jar Jar informs him that he owes him a life debt. The Jedi asked what that meant and he was told that since he saved uh, Bink's life, uh, that Jar Jar must be his servant, and when he asked how long this arrangement would last, Jar Jar replied, forever. (laughs) Qui-Gon didn't consider that very good news, and so began the saga of that hapless citizen of the underwater city of Otugunga. Now, although he was not uh, embraced by most of the Star Wars fans, he certainly didn't cut a gallant figure one could argue that he was really rather heroic in spite of all of that Uh, he knew he owed the man who saved him a life debt and he was determined to carry it out to pay that debt or at least try to no matter what the consequences you know there really is another group of people that knows or should know something about a life debt They may not call it that, but it would serve as a good descriptor for them also. You see, uh, Christians also are under such an obligation. Christ saved us eternally, and we owe him our all. And a case could really be made that Jar Jar is rather a good symbol for uh, believers rejected and ridiculed by the world and unable to save themselves, but we're We're going to forego that observation, and we're going to turn our attention instead to this idea of the life debt that we owe our benefactor. There are many places in Scripture that uh, teach us about this truth, but we uh, are going to turn to the most famous of them, the one that's found at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. So I want to invite you to join me there in your Bible in chapter 12 of Romans, verses 1 and 2, where you can look on the screen on either side of me. I have to tell you the passage we're looking at today is very complex and, and I'm going to invite you to listen and stay with me as we work our way through and try to understand what we're being taught here. Romans and Hebrews are arguably the most important theological writings of the New Testament and, and these Two verses, verses one and two of Romans 12, form a turning point in the letter of Romans. Everything that was said in the previous 11 chapters in Romans and everything that follows these flow from that. The 11 chapters lead up to these two verses and everything else flows from them. They are a tremendous, concise, beautiful and powerful summary of the Christian life. And Paul understood that as he uh, was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing these words. And he begins verse 1 this way, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. Now, while that therefore points Back to all that he has just uh, finished saying. The urging turns our thoughts to what comes after. And it really gives us a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle. You see, he cared deeply for believers, all believers, all those who followed Christ, whether he had ever met them personally or not. And he strongly desired the best for them. And so he urges them to respond in the way that he's going to outline. Yet he's not basing his appeal on anything as small as himself. The reason he gives uh, is so much broader, it's so much more important, so much fuller than that. It's a majestic and eternal and powerful rising out of the very heart of God. Paul urges us on, by the mercies of God... He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Because God has been merciful to you, Paul says, I want to urge you to respond to him in the appropriate way, in the appropriate response to his grace. So you understand the good news, the gospel, don't you? So Most of you in this room, I know, really do, but for anyone who's here who doesn't know that, I'm really obligated to share that with you. I have to tell you, I'm not just obligated. I want to tell you the best news that anyone could ever hear. And everyone in this room who knows that good news feels about it the same way that I do. And yet before I can tell you that, I have to tell you something else. You need to know that God's word speaks the truth when it says that we are all sinners. Everyone who has ever lived, with the exception of Jesus Christ, has sinned. Everyone in this room, you, me, The person in front of you, the person behind you, the person beside of you, all people everywhere for all time have done things that they should not have done or they have done, we have done things, not done things that we know we should have done. We're guilty and that guilt, our sin, separates us from God. And since all good is from and to God, we're separated from all good or we will be. It's by God's mercy that it hasn't happened yet. That's really what hell is. It's, a, it's an absence of God and everything that is good. That's what our sin gets for us. And the truth gets even worse. You see, we can't undo even one of our sons sins and we, none of us have sinned only one time. Our sins are beyond our ability to count. And they lay upon us like a a weight that would crush us to the ground and would already have done so except by God's mercy. Our situation outside of God's mercy is even darker than that. We cannot stop sinning. No matter how hard we try. Oh, I know, I know most people think they can. Most people who haven't come to Christ, no, they really do. They think that they could stop. If only they got to that place where they would make up their mind, they could really stop doing things that are wrong. And it really isn't until they try that they find out just how impossible that task is. Not for God. Again, his mercy holds promise even for that. Without God, we're lost. We're undone, we're guilty and condemned, without hope or prospect. But God, but God loves us. So he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He sent his son to take our sins away. That's the good news. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't a mistake, it wasn't an error, it was God's set purpose. The Bible tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on that tree, on that cross, so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. We're told by his wounds we're healed. He tasted death for every person. His blood paid for the sins of the entire world. That's God's mercy, and it's offered to all. It has been accepted by most of the people here in this room, and it cries out to you if you have not yet come to God. And if you're hearing it now for the first time, if God is speaking to you, then I want to tell you don't delay. No one is promised another day. You're not promised another hour. You're not promised even another minute. Right there in your seat, in the quietness of your heart, you can tell God, all about yourself. You can confess your sin. You can ask him to save you, to be merciful to you, to forgive you your sins. All of them. There are no exceptions. Nothing is held back. And if you do that, you can know God's mercy and all of its sweetness and warmth and power and freedom. And if you still don't know what I'm talking about or understanding, once again, I'll tell you to come and see me or go see any other person you know who's a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And we'll be glad to show you from God's word how you can know that you have eternal life. Now for the rest of you, this mercy that that Paul is uh, basing his appeal on is uh, what we're considering for those of us who have experienced it. It is the reason enough to do what the apostle goes on to urge us to do. So let's read what he says here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that word body uh, there really is uh, symbolic. It's It's a representation of our whole self. And so those words would have have been more familiar to the people of Paul's day, people who were used to the bloody sacrifices of the, of the temple worship, both the Jewish and pagan temples of that day. And they were much more used to it than we are today, so they require a little bit of explanation. Because so specifically in the Old Testament, God required his people to make sacrifices to him. And those sacrifices really were for many different things, such as giving thanks to God or, or for fellowship with God or because of guilt. And those sacrifices themselves really didn't change anything. They were symbolic and they, and they pointed to what was yet to come when God would send his son into the world. And yet... God required them to be made. And so when Jesus came, that entire system was set aside. The reality that it represented had come, and that sacrificial system had served its purpose. And God himself had now made the sacrifice, and it was complete, and it need never be made again. And what God required of us in the New Testament is not something... We can give him, but the giver himself or herself, he requires us. We owe him a life debt, and we owe it for as long as we live. And for those of us who have received God's mercy, that's forever because we're going to live Forever And so Jar Jar was set free from his life debt when Qui-Gon died, or if he had died, he would have been unable to keep his obligation. But God lives forever, and Jesus was raised from the dead, and by his mercy, we'll live forever too, and we will always be obligated to God. And yet, just like Jesus' sacrifice, Our sacrifice will be changed to glory just as he was. Still, now it is a sacrifice. We daily, constantly, moment by moment, ought to be laying ourselves on the altar of God. The truth is is we don't experience life as a sacrifice. Not always. We we know much joy and peace and love and happiness, and we know it honestly more deeply when, when we're offering ourselves to God. Still, we do experience the pain of sacrifice as we live. At such times, we feel the reality of what we're committed to. We lose a job or a loved one dies. Or one of our dreams fails. Or we deny ourselves or go the extra mile or turn the other cheek. Or endure ridicule and we climb again back on that altar and we understand again in our hearts what that term living sacrifice really means. You know, Paul tells us something about it that we need to know especially at such times. Something we... Would not know ourselves. He tells us a, about our sacrifice when he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You see, our sacrifice of our self, our giving of our whole self to our God It it, it means that we're set apart for God's purpose. There's no accident. As hard as it may be, whatever it is that we go through in this life, as hard as it may be, whatever it is we're facing, God is going to make good come from it, whatever that it might be. And our climbing on that altar is pleasing to God. You know, he smiles at such times as that. We we know that we really can't give anything to God that he needs or or we can't give him anything that he hasn't already given to us, but just like a mother smiles when her child brings her a handful of dandelions, so God smiles on us. It's the heart that's in the gift that makes it valuable, that touches the heart of the mother or the heart of God. You know, some people outside the faith, some that are outside, or some who maybe have wandered from God's side and have almost forgotten what His mercy is like, they may feel that such a thing's too much, that God's asking too much of us. You know, that simply is not true. What God asks of us in light of his mercy really is quite reasonable. Paul puts it this way. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You know, true and proper is really just one in the original, and the context gives the meaning, which is something like this. This is what one would expect from a creature Made in God's image and redeemed by God. It involves the whole person and not just going through emotion. So if someone pays you a compliment, it's reasonable to say thank you. If they give you a gift, a card's appropriate. If they give you a lift, you might offer to pay for some gas. If someone saves your life in a battle, you know you can never repay them. So you might name a child after them or donate something in their name or at the least and the best of all, you pray for them. It is really what you ought to do. And for all that God has done for us, it really is the right thing to do, to give him our whole self. You know, we can summarize what we've said so far this way. Because we're deemed, Not in order to be redeemed, but because we already are redeemed. We ought to give our whole selves to God for his purpose and pleasure. Now the next verse that we're going to look at, verse 2, really does two things. Uh, We're going to have to go through it more quickly, but once you begin to understand what verse 1 is saying, uh, verse 2 comes easier. That's why we spent that much time there. The first thing that verse two, 2 does is to tell us how we do or accomplish what verse 1 urges us to do. So if we want to be a living sacrifice, if we want to demonstrate our love for the God who loved us, so, so then we must not be absorbed into the fabric of the world. And of course that word world. Here means the system which sets itself against God and his purposes. Instead, we must be changed from the inside out. And so Paul writes in verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we're not to be conformed. Rather, we're to be transformed. And not being conformed means not being squeezed into the world's mold And so shaped by it, either either from the pressure of the world outside on you or by simply acquiescing to it, just giving in to it. you can kind of think of clay that's been made soft and malleable, and it's pressed into the form. And without God's mercy, that's what the world does to every one of us. It presses us into the shape that it wants us to be. Or if we yield, we're like molten lead that's poured into a mold, and we take on all of its characteristics. You see, the world is always trying to squeeze us into its mold. We see a couple of prime examples in our own day. And the homosexual movement and the abortion movement. The homosexuals, it's not enough for them to, to, to have their lifestyle. You have to accept it too or they're going to persecute you. You will yield to them or pay the price. The same thing with the abortion movement. You, uh, you're going to pay. It doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. You're going to pay. Our kids experience that all the time. We call it peer pressure. And so they're being pressured into all kinds of things, aren't they? Pressured into language they use or drugs or alcohol or sex. All of that is the world trying to force our kids into its mold. We call it peer pressure. We think about children when we say it. But the truth of the matter is, my friends, is as adults we face that same kind of pressure. May you laugh at the crude joke at work? Will you speak up for another believer who's being ridiculed? Will you let it be known to others that you're a Christian? Everyone faces that pressure, and the world is always trying to force us into its mold. And, and if you if you want to do all of that, all that you should for the God who loves you, that that showered His mercy on you, then you have to resist being absorbed into the world. Rather, you need to be changed from the inside out. You need to be transformed. So this is something that happens to us. A verb is passive. We're acted on. We're changed. We don't change ourselves. And another word for that is uh, is transfiguration. It, it happens from the inside out. We're really becoming what we are being changed into. We're not just stamped out. Uh, like a run-of-the-mill imitation that uh, comes out of a mold. We're really becoming what we were made to be. We're really becoming God's idea of us. And, of course, God's idea of us is really who we are. Just as Christ was transfigured, so are we. It's the very same word. It's something that happened to him also. but, But in his case... It was a revealing of what was already there and hidden under the flesh. For us, it's a changing of what we are to what we should be. And that transformation happens to us by or through the renewing of our minds. So in chapter 1, rejection of God resulted in God giving those people over to a worthless mind. And here, the process reversed. Our, Our minds are renewed. And the idea is that our minds are actually being made better than what they otherwise would have been. You see, the mind really is the way that we look or think about our existence, both both our own and that of everyone and everything else. And the way we see life is what we become. We know this intuitively. We tell people to believe they can do something and they can do it. We tell them to think that they will fail and they probably almost certainly will. We tell them not to speak bad about themselves because it affects their behavior. We tell them not to entertain evil thoughts because it leads to evil. The Bible communicates this truth to us all the time. Hebrews 11 says uh, faith is believing God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Romans 10 says, with the heart we believe to salvation. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in himself, so he is. The renewing of the mind it itself is God's work through his spirit. So our minds are renewed and by that spirit it's so obvious that it's something other than ourselves that do it. We can't renew our own mind. We don't have the assets. But the work does not proceed without our cooperation. And it really is this ongoing process in our lives. So that doesn't mean we have to wait till the end of the process to enjoy the benefits, rather. As we're growing and changing and maturing, we're able to realize the benefits appropriate to that place in our life. So that's the very first thing that uh, verse 1 teaches us. The sense is, is we must resist being molded by the world, either by pressure or acquiescence, and cooperate with God as he works to change the way we look at reality and therefore changing who we are. And all of that brings us to the second thing that verse does, 2 does, which is why we're looking at this passage this morning anyway. See, we've been asking the question, how can we discover God's will for our lives? in the large things or uh, in the small twists and turns of our existence. And we said that there were kind of six or eight things that that really bear upon it, all of which are aspects of our relationship with God. They're not so much things we use to get at God's will as if we could dig it out ourselves. Rather, they're part of an ongoing relationship with our Heavenly Father through which he reveals his will to us. So we, we discover, for instance, that his will comes to us through his word but it's his word spoken to us in relationship and after we looked at that we saw that God reveals his will to us when we're in community when we're with other believers in the church as he did for Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13 and here we find that as we continually give our whole self to him which is the only reasonable thing we can do and we do that by resisting being absorbed in the world and by being transformed by the way we look at reality we find we're discovering god's will romans says it this way do not conform to the pattern of this world but you transform by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, when we don't conform, but rather have our minds renewed so that we're transformed, then, and really only then, can we know God's will. We find ourselves in the position to be able to test and approve his will. And that testing, approving, again, is actually just one word in the Greek, which means that something has been tested, and it's been found to be authentic. That's why the NIV translates it the way it does. Understanding that th- truth, then, requires us to take a step or two of logic. See, we're the ones who are doing that testing and approving and of God's will. And and we're finding that it's to be authentic, and to do so, we have to know what it is. And that's why all the commentators in this passage say things like this, testing and approving means to understand and agree what God wants of us with a view of putting it into practice. Or it means to discover, to find out or learn by experience what the, uh, what the will of God is and to discern how to uh, how good and right it is. That's why some Bibles simply translate it by such things as, then you will learn to know God's will for you, that or that you may discern what is God's will. And, of course, since it is God's will, it passes muster in all the things that Paul on, goes on to say about it. He tells us that God's will is good. Good. That means it's morally upright and acceptable. It's, it's holy in the real sense of that word. It's, it's what we mean when we say something like, it's good. And God's will is pleasing. And to God, naturally, it's pleasing. But also to us, as we become more and more the kind of people that we need to be, we become more and more like him. Almost like a, a child whose taste for food changes as he or she grows. And God's will is also perfect. It's complete or full. There's nothing lacking it. If it were a, a food, we'd say it was fortified with all the best ingredients. He's our shepherd and when we're in his will, we don't want for anything. His will is without error or mistake. You see, God has never been taken by surprise. He's never slipped. He's never fallen asleep. He would never let his mind wander. He never done any of the other thousand things that we as humans can be guilty of. Whatever comes our way, he has at least allowed it to come our way. And he will. He promises us he will. He will bring good out of whatever we go through. Romans 12 1 and 2 tells us what Paul urges on all believers is this. Because we're redeemed, we ought to continually give up our whole selves to God for his purpose and pleasure. That really is the reasonable thing for us to do. It happens when we resist being molded by the world and as we cooperate with God, as he changes the way we look at our world, and therefore changes who we are. And when we're changed, or when we're in that process of being changed, we can discern God's will for us. And you know something? That's really how we come to understand that it's good and pleasing and perfect. You see, without that, that transformation... We could be told what God's will for us really was, either for our life or some particular part of our life. God himself could tell us, or he could send one of his angels to us, or he could even send the Apostle Paul, and he could do so in in such a way that we would know that it was God himself or an angel of God or the Apostle Paul. And without that transformation, we would not be able to accept it or believe it or understand it because we aren't yet what we ought to be. You know, moments of reflection makes you know that that's true. What does it mean to die to yourself? No one but a Christian understands that. What does it mean to give your money away like we're supposed to do? What does it mean that we should die rather than deny our faith as our brothers and sisters all over the world are? (laughs) that way with all of the deeper truths of the faith. To really know God's will, to really appreciate his will, what it has done for us, what he has for us, for your life or or for everyday kinds of things that go. And we have to be continually changing, becoming more and more like the person God wants us to be. And since we're redeemed, we really ought to continually give up our whole self to God for whatever he wants from us. And that only happens as we resist being molded by the world, and as we cooperate with God as he works to change the way we look at reality, which really changes us. You know, in a real way, everything that I've said today could be summed up by saying we need to be obedient. When you look at Romans twelve one and 2, Is really talking about the heart of obeying God. I can tell you something. I don't know why anyone would expect God to reveal something more in his will to them if they weren't already obeying things that they know they should be doing. God wants to reveal his will to you your life for the smaller things. He does so through his words spoken in relationship. He does so when you're part of a local congregation and you're in community. And he does so when you're giving yourself to him. When you're a living sacrifice. When you're resisting the world. When your mind is being renewed. And then when he speaks to you and he shows you what his will is you know it you understand it you see it you accept it and it might be hard but you embrace it because it's God's will it's good and perfect and complete no. It's not a gimmick. It's not just something we do and then turn our back on God. It's all about our relationship with Him. Nothing else really matters. And when we have that relationship, everything begins to fall into place. And we hear him speak, and he guides us step by step. I don't know about you, but I think I'm willing pay whatever the price is to be led every day by the living God would you pray with me please Father we do thank you that you um, you don't try to make a secret of your intentions you really do want to communicate them to us but um But, Lord, it has to happen in the way in which we can understand it. And if we simply remain the way we are, we don't have that place in our hearts or our minds. We don't have that place in our understanding to receive what you would give to us. So we need you to help us to start a step or two further back. Help us to change. Help us to yield. Help us to surrender ourselves to you. And then, Lord, may we know fully the blessing that comes from that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.